Hello and welcome to Centre Stage, a program for the International Centre for Women Playwrights, a virtual non-profit organisation dedicated to supporting women playwrights around the world. Centre Stage celebrates the work of members by showcasing excerpts of their work, followed by an interview where we can hear about their ideas and sometimes their process. I'm Jenny Monday and in this Centre Stage we have Annie Lanzalotto reading an excerpt from her play, Twelve Rabbis Went to a Party. Annie is one of our member playwrights living in the United States. To begin with, we have Annie reading from the play. Annie's work is copyright, and if you're interested in performing any of her plays, you can contact her through womenplaywrights.org or her webpage, www.streetcryinc, all one word, S T R. E E T C R Y I N C dot org. You can hear other excerpts of Annie's work on this page too. Here is Annie reading from Twelve Rabbis Went to a Party. Twelve rabbis were at a party. It was the January before the plague. I was in a state of anxiety like that dog chained outside the gates of Pompeii barking and writhing, and no one knew why. At the party, I did a stand-up routine, after which one rabbi asked me about the mafia. I said, ah, come on, rabbi, you of all people should know better than, you know, to stereotype someone because of their accent. Come on. The second rabbi asked me an even stranger question. Strange because I just had everybody laughing at the whole event, hundreds of people. And also strange in his soft, sotto voce intention of listening. How are you, he asked. How am I? Geez, Rabbi, thanks for asking. Actually, I'm very depressed and in a panic. I can't rest. I don't want to be home alone anymore. So I keep running around the city, doing my writing and diners, trying to sleep at the friends' houses when I can. And I just, anything to not go home. Call me, he said. Come see me. My name is Simka. And my wife's name is Simka, too. Oh, so whoever I, I call, whoever answers the phone, all I got to do is say, hello, Simka? Yes, he said. I said, all right, that I can manage. I called that night and made an appointment for the next Wednesday, at which point I sat face-to-face -face with Rabbi Simka. I told him all my troubles. You know, I'm poor, I'm sick, I'm alone. Everyone I love is either dead or far away. I live in an apartment full of traumatic memories. I don't see a way out. And the world, of course, is messed up. Hmm, he said. It's like the destruction of the first temple. The temple? Yes. When was that? It's believed to be 586 BCE. 586 BCE, yes, at the hand of the Babylonians. On a piece of paper, Rabbi Simka gave me a prescription, a grid, four tasks to healing. The grid, he said, is the complete remedy developed by Reb Nahim of Brezhlev, the great-grandson of the founder of Hasidism, the mystic Baal Shem Tov. The grid is comprehensive. Number one, every day sing a psalm. Number two, every day be in touch with nature. Number three, 
every day do something for somebody in a worse situation than your own. And the fourth, I forget right now. The next week, I told Rabbi Simka of my efforts and persistent malaise. I walked around my neighborhood singing Psalm 118. I walked in circles around this big old pine tree. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Oh, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Be glad, be glad, be glad, oh, be glad. You know, Rabbi, the word the Lord bothers me. You know, it reminds me of the padrone system, why my relatives were starving and had to come here in the first place. The padrone controlled everything. Taxes on the goat, restriction of water, made your life miserable, desperate. So I'm going to sing it like this. This is the day the goddess has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Be glad, be glad, be glad, oh, be glad. This is the day the goddess has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Anyway, Rabbi, I did the third part of the grid, too. I checked in on an elderly neighbor who's a shut-in. But still, you know, I can't shake this panic. Hmm, he said. It's like the destruction of the second temple. The second temple? Yes, by the Romans. When was that? Around 70 CE. Is that 70 AD? Yes, the rest of the world says AD. You know I'm not Roman, right, Rabbi? I'm Bares. You know, there's a big difference. We went on like this back and forth until COVID-19 descended upon New York. Then I saw Rabbi Simka on Zoom in a group session. All these elderly ladies were Zooming in from their bedrooms, alone, now sequestered, sheltering in place. All of us were starving for connection and affection. Rabbi Simka talked about the moment the world was in, and he talked about ancient history. Ah, now I remember the fourth part of the grid. Number four, every day look to the past to an ancestor or historical figure and meditate on how they survived terrible times and conquered their terror. I thought about my grandparents, their starvation and immigration. I thought about my father and his hand-to-hand combat and war trauma from World War II, fighting in Okinawa with the Marines. I thought about my mother getting what they used to call in the Bronx, you know, being smacked around which was common on our block after World War II. I thought of how they all pulled through, how they carried on, conquered their terror, survived or tried to, created their own joie de vivre, joie de vivre, joy of living. It's important to create joy. And how my grandmother and my mother always regained that sparkle in their eye. And I began to study the history of the destruction and rebuilding of the temples. Now we have a short interview with Annie, and I started with the question, can you tell me about how you came to write the story, 12 Rabbis Went to a Party? 12 Rabbis Went to a Party is a story that I tell. Uh, It's a monologue about a true life happening where um, 
you know, as is said in the story, I was at a party and there were rabbis there and I was doing a stand-up routine and um, it was to celebrate the birthday of uh, a lighting designer named Tony Giovanetti. And it was one of the last great Brooklyn parties that, it was the last great Brooklyn party that I went to. You know, there must've been, I don't know, 150, 200 people there. And um, Tony is a celebrated lighting designer internationally. He's probably worked in Australia. And uh, after this routine I did to entertain the crowd, one of the rabbis said to me, how are you? <laughs> and it really took me by surprise because I just got off stage, so to speak. And uh, I said, actually, Rabbi, you know, not that good. I'm feeling really uh, anxious and like a malaise. And I really could use to talk to somebody. So he said, well, come talk to me. And uh, and it went on from there, you know. So so that's that story's in a podcast. And um. I started a podcast because I was in quarantine like the rest of the world. And I knew because I'm immunocompromised that I was gonna be in it for a long haul. And I also knew from being an AIDS activist back in the day and a young teenage cancer patient, not to believe uh, the messaging that was being put out by government or, or anybody, but just to really get into survival mode. And so I built this audio cave out of sleeping blankets and uh, like a lean-to, you know, in my living room. And I just said, I, you know, I'm going to be at this for months, so I might as well start talking to the walls because I'm going to be physically in isolation. And so that's how the podcast Annie's Story Cave was born. And it's really, you could say it's a solo show, right? I mean, because on stage, I've done a lot of one-woman shows and... I think the podcast stories aren't that different, except on stage, I take people on a different journey. I think in the podcasting, especially during quarantine, I really was cognizant that the stories had a reach for a luster of humor to uplift people because people's lives were, you know, suffering. When we're out at the theater and then we're going out to a diner afterwards, I could take the audience anywhere on, on any journey. It could be re-traumatizing, it could be anything because we're gonna have an after party. We're gonna have time to talk. People are gonna be social with each other. If, you know, I've had audience members in tears and really re-traumatized by some of the stories, but then we talk, we go out for coffee. I say, let's go to the diner. But during COVID-19, I just said to myself, reach for the humor. You could start with the tragedy. You could start with the real life, gritty, you know, nuts and bolts, uh, mental health challenge of being in exile. But reach for the luster of humor because we all really need to be uplifted. And that was, I don't know, it was a nice journey for me. You know, in, in my books and, and stage work, I don't always reach for that luster of humor. But going forward now, I may. I feel it's um, it's a reach. It really is a reach, you know, to tell a story through to a kind of humor like that you would think of as spiritual, like dancing on graves kind of thing, like celebrating at funerals, that kind of humor. 
you know, through acceptance and, and through um, life that's hard lived, you know. Have you received feedback on those stories that you've got on your Story Cave website? Yes. A lot of feedback comes from older women who I think are also isolated to different degrees and find the, um, the journey through from the grit to humor, you know, helpful during this time. Where, where do these um, topics or titles come from? Yeah, I have a list of about 100 stories I want to tell. The first solo show I ever did on stage was called Confessions of a Bronx Tomboy, My Throwing Arm, This Useless Expertise. And that was in 1993, a solo show. I realized that through the decades, that script isn't published anywhere. And the video's not very good. It's on a VHS a shot at a distance. And so the podcast gave me a chance to retell that story. So one of the titles is My Throwing Arm. And I reached again for a kind of torturous gender dysphoria that I had from two years old. And I tell the story about being put in this pink dress for my second birthday. And physically, I could remember, you know, pushing and tearing and screaming and trying to get out of it, feeling trapped in pink. And then, uh, you know, my throwing arm goes through a whole journey. And, and on the podcast, I'm able to add a beautiful bouncing sound of the ball that I used to throw as a kid, you know, the same kind of ball, which is, it was a New York ball called the Spaldine. It's a little pink ball. And then the title, uh, Prepare to Be Found, like the story suggests, there was a post-it that I had written and I forgot why I wrote it and it said, prepare to be found. And so I said, what does this mean? What, why did I write this for some reason? It would appear in whatever, I have just a couple of rooms here, but I'd be, let's say, you know, in one room and it would appear. It's like it flew around the house trying to get my attention. And then I remembered why I wrote it. A couple of elder queer friends of mine, not that, not that elder, you know, like in their 60s, I'm 58, so not that elder, were found dead during COVID. You know, one was in the apartment for a couple of weeks, another was in a hospital unidentified for more than a couple of weeks, and I'm living alone. So I wrote myself this note, prepare to be found, <laughs> because, you know, yeah, you just don't know what's going to happen. And when you're living alone, you don't know what's going to happen. So um, when I realized why I wrote the note, then I was able to tell that, that monologue, you know. Uh, another title of a show I did, it's not on the podcast yet, but it was a solo show called How to Wake Up a Marine in a Foxhole. And it was about growing up with, I'm a baby boomer, and my father uh, fought in Okinawa in World War II as a Marine, a U.S. Marine. And just waking him up was... Uh, you know, you didn't, you wanted him to know who you were. You didn't, you wanted, if he was having a dissociative PTSD state. So, so I would, I was taught to, you know, open his eye that that's a gentle way to wake up. And so I did a solo show about that. I do a lot of writing about PTSD and um, the legacy of being a baby boomer of a soldier with PTSD. So that's where that title came from. Yeah, the titles are really, they really come from uh, 
like a poetic gestalt of um, a story in my life. Fritatogorophobia was the first condition I diagnosed of my mother, which was she wouldn't leave the house without a frittata in her pocketbook because of the prices of the gentrified New York. And we had this one story, you know, that, which I tell during the podcast where uh, we, we were out at a museum and we were exhausted. So we ended up on Madison Avenue trying to have lunch. And after that day, she vowed like she's never coming to the city without. So, so she, uh, she carried big pocketbooks. And if she took a bus, the whole bus would smell like an Italian uh, kitchen, you know. So frittata gorophobia is the fear of not leaving the house without a frittata. <laughs> Every culture has their unique diagnoses, right? Annie, do you always write material only for yourself or do you write material for other people to perform as well? Yeah, I... I have passed some scripts on to other actors. So during quarantine, I wrote a short one act called The Hooking Place about a cross-class relationship between two women, two lesbian lovers. And it was produced by Theater 68 and acted by two wonderful young actresses. It was very satisfying, you know, for me to, to do that. I'm looking at my old scripts now to see where to submit or what, what, how to reshape and submit, you know, for younger actresses, actors and actresses, things that I did when I was younger. Yeah, yeah. So more, more of that, more of that to come. Definitely, especially, you know, as I get older, I think that that's the, that's the direction. When you're writing, then, is it always from your own experiences? I mean, it sounds like you've had amazing experiences, but are they always from that source or do you have get ideas from other places in the past you know couple of years i wrote a musical called lasagna superstar we did a staged reading of it i was not in it uh it was based on a story from my life but then went into like a mythological the lasagna is a character that sings and so it flies into a mythological uh story and i i recently wrote a, a short one act called The Devil Don't Take Cash about, and it was inspired by the crisis in the Mediterranean. When I was in Sicily a couple of years ago, uh, the ports were closed because the NGO SOS Mediterranean was rescuing refugees in the Mediterranean and then seeking ports to land. And, and everybody was closing their ports. So, so coming up from the African coast, Malta said, no, you can't come here. Uh, Sicily, all the ports were closed. Finally, after I don't know how many days at sea, they were able to land in Spain. After a lot of activism and, you know, I mean, people were in, in peril and dying. So out of that activist, visiting the activist marches in the, at the ports, particularly the port of Messina, uh, where a friend took me. I wrote a play ab about two fishermen, um, which this is a situation Sicilian fishermen are facing for years and, and every day, which is if they find people in the water, dead or alive, do they take them in their boats or not? And if they take them in, 
uh, then their bolts are impounded. You know, if you take in a dead body, it's impounded as a crime scene, right? Where did you get this body? Did you kill somebody? So the fishermen lose work. So I wrote a short one act about the two fishermen who disagree. You know, one please with the other one, I can't be out of work. These people are dead and my family still needs to eat. And the other one says, well, we have to do the right thing. We have to, you know, take them. Maybe their families are waiting to hear what happens, what happened to them. Maybe we can identify them. Yeah, that ethical dilemma of the fishermen really, um, really moved me. When you get an idea like that, what's your process of of creating a play from it? You know, do you have a particular process you always follow? Um, well, I really do believe that you have to achieve the core action image as if the play is 90 seconds long. So I always think to myself, if the play is tonight and it's 90 seconds, what's the core action image that needs to be achieved? And then build around it. I feel that, you know, as, as someone who's been a mentor, a writing mentor and performance mentor and theater mentor, often things are built, but that core center is not there. So, so I always ask myself that question. And in this case, the core action image is these two fisher, it could be any gender, these two, we call them fishermen, becoming, well, fighting and becoming either rescuers or maybe killing each other, maybe becoming killers. And then the, there's the voice of the refugee. So the refugee, even if it's a case where the refugee's dead in the water, the refugee must have a voice in the play. So in this case, there's a letter in the pocket of the refugee. I was very moved. I come, all my family comes from the Greek heel of Italy, uh, Puglia, which, which is the heel of the boot. I was very moved. My small town, Acquaviva d'Elefante, had a, a nativity scene in 2018 that was very progressive, particularly for a small Catholic town. And the nativity scene was site-specific in the piazza. And it was thousands of empty water bottles representing the, you know, the plastic in the water, the pollution of the, of the sea. And then the three figures, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, were refugees in the water. One had uh, a turban, you know, Muslim dress. And, and maybe a life preserver or not, you know, they were either being rescued or not. But the message was clear. The message was, if you are religious, whatever your religion is, this is a crisis that needs to be addressed. This is where Jesus is now. Where's Jesus right now? He's a refugee in the Mediterranean, dead or alive, you know, or struggling to stay alive. And, um, and the ports are closed. <laughs> and what are we going to do about that? The ports don't want to open. You know, I mean, the European Union is, you know, literally counting and tallying, saying, well, this country took this many thousand, this country took that many, what about the other country? And it's like, uh, you know, they're tallying to try to make things even. And, uh, and it's a big crisis. You know, that nativity scene really, really moved me. I was really proud of my town that they came up with this, you know, and that the mayor approved it and, you know, you know, that they said, yeah, let's do this. This is the, you know, this is um, the right thing to do. The, the practice of sculpting these nativity scenes is thousands of years old and very theatrical. 
I was very moved by it. And of course, I could then say something about Australia's situation and refugees, but we won't go into that because it's quite shame. I'm ashamed of it, quite frankly. But anyway, it sounds like you're you work a lot. You're writing a lot. Um, so is this a discipline thing for you? Have you got kind of there's a lockdown, but um, do you schedule your writing or does it happen when you just get the inspiration? No, I'm constantly working. I'm really, I have a working class uh, marination, you could say. Uh, I'm just constantly working. It's, you know, I get up. Uh, now I take a walk before the heat so that I'm recovering from, from a surgery. So I'm trying to just increase my lungs and, and stamina. And then I come home and work through the heat of the day. And then at night I take another walk. Yeah, it's constant. There's, there's no real day off. I mean, if anything, I have to pull myself away and say, you know, you have to move your body, you have to cook some food, or you have to take care of something for somebody. And it's a, you know, a vocation, I would say. So perhaps, um, you know, to finish off, you could perhaps tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now. What have you got coming up? Well, right now, um, I'm doing a talk show on Zoom that we started in quarantine. I'm collaborating with an organization called City Law, with L-O-R-E, which is a folklore organization uh, of urban culture based in New York. And I'm the artistic director of Street Cry, which is very inspired by the call of pushcart peddlers. And so for this talk show, we, we're taking on head on some of the um, big issues in this country and, and around the world racism, anti-Asian violence, the spike after COVID in this country. And I, I do a monologue for every show, so I'm telling a story. The title of this talk show is Tell Me a Story. And where it came from was a dear friend of mine was shot dead a year ago by her brother in front of her mother. They lost, the mother had three kids in let's say March. One kid died of COVID. And then the other kid shot the sister, So and then he went to jail. So then by July, the mother had no kids, and she was 95 years old. And so I went to her house every night last summer, and she would just say, tell me a story, Annie. And I'd sit at a social distance, like on the uh, sidewalk, and she was on her porch. And I said, all right, let me tell you a story. And so I would tell her stories from life, but again, with this intention to uplift her until she would try to fall asleep. And I realized, you know, the power of story to just uplift, even in the most tragic, horrific, unbearable situation you could ever imagine. When, when Gertie, the, the mother who's now 95, when she said, tell me a story, Annie, it felt like a, um, you know, a spiritual command let me transport you now for an hour by telling you a story. And so I reached back into, into, my, into my life, into experience, my experiences, and told the stories in a way that would transport Gertie for an hour and toward bedtime. Really, it's like, how do you get a kid to bed? You tell them a story, right? You know, it's kind of primal, right? I'm sure we all, that's what, we've done as a species is sit around the fire and, you know, tell a story uh, and dance and, you know, so it's kind of primal. 
And so whatever's bothering me is what we base these themes on for the for these Zoom talk shows. And this year there was a lot bothering me. So I would just start complaining in our meetings. And out of that complaint would come the theme for a show. You've been listening to Annie Lanzalotto, who met with me via Zoom. Annie is one of our members from the United States, so thanks to Annie, and thanks to you for listening in to Centre Stage. We'll have more podcasts coming soon.